Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. But let's, let's jump into the scripture today. We're in 1 Thessalonians. This is a little letter that you probably have never read before. <laughs> Unless you've like intentionally read through the Bible, 1 Thessalonians isn't a place most people go for like encouragement or go for like, if, if, you, if you are into, um, you know, you, you're just looking up what's going to be encouraging to you at the moment or some verses for inspiration, 1 Thessalonians generally isn't the place you go. Um, although it's, it's crazy because 1 Thessalonians is an amazing little letter. So we talked last week about the occasion for this letter. Why was this letter written? So let's, let's do a little backtrack. We were in the book of Acts last week. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul has been saved by Jesus. He's traveling around. He's starting new churches in cities all over the known world at the time, all over the Roman Empire. Tra- Paul's traveling around, and he ends up in Greece at this city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city of about 100,000 people, which at the time was a very large, prominent city. It was a very important place. So Paul ends up in Thessalonica, and he goes to the synagogue, to the Jewish gathering, and he starts teaching about Jesus in the synagogue. And lots of people begin to believe in Jesus. Only lots of people don't begin to believe in Jesus either. And those people who don't believe in Jesus they really don't believe in Jesus. And so they run Paul out of town. Like they threaten him. They put him in jail. Um, Paul has to get bailed out of jail. And then he and his buddies, Silas and Timothy, get moved on to the city of Berea. They start preaching in Berea. In Berea, the people in Thessalonica who were mad at Paul and Silas, they go to Berea. They find out Paul's preaching in Berea, and they're like, that's not good. That's not enough. Like, you need to be further away. Get out of our area. And so they chase them down in Berea. And Paul has to leave Berea and go to the city of Athens, which is in a whole different area. Like, Athens is in a different region. And so Paul runs off, and he's concerned about the state of the church in Thessalonica. He's very concerned about these baby Christians who were like being persecuted from their neighbors and he doesn't know how they're doing. And so Paul continues his journey. He goes to Athens, he preaches, and then he goes on to Corinth and he makes an agreement with Silas and Timothy that they're going to go back to Thessalonica and check out the church and see how things are going there, make sure that people are okay, and then they're going to meet up with him in Corinth later. And so months and months later, Timothy and Silas come back to Corinth and they report to Paul how the church is doing in Thessalonica. And that's when Paul writes this letter. He writes this letter from the city of Corinth back to these struggling churches in Thessalonica. So I hope you're following my geography here, but that's kind of how we're doing it. We're, we're following in, a, in kind of a loop. So Thessalonica is up here, then Berea is down here, and then Athens is down here, and then Corinth is over here. And so they're kind of coming in this loop. And then Paul gets the letter, gets the report about the Christians in Thessalonica. Hey, Paul, they're suffering and they're doing really well. Now, that's crazy, right? That's crazy talk. No, would any of us in this room be like, hey, you know what? If someone asked how you were doing, you'd be like, you know, I'm suffering, but I'm really happy. <laughs> like, 
I'm suffering, but I'm actually doing really good. I'm suffering, but God's grace has been amazing in this season. Would anybody here say that? Anybody here ever talk to somebody who would say, you know what, we're struggling, but actually life is really great. If you read reports from the church in the world where the church is persecuted, you'll hear exactly that from a lot of followers of Jesus. We're living in this place where Christianity is not welcome. We're living in this place where Christianity is illegal. We're living in this place where if they find out I'm a follower of Jesus, if they find out I converted to Christianity, if they find out I'm sharing the good news of Jesus with other people, then the police will come after me. If they find out about my faith, then I don't know about my future in my home country. And yet from these same people, You'll hear, but my life is joyful, but my faith is strong, but we have each other, but we have this community. I mean, that's just such a mind shift from who and where we are in the United States and who and where we are right now. So many of us, if we were, we couldn't fathom saying, you know what, I'm struggling, but life is really good because God is really good. I'm suffering, but life is really joyful because I know Jesus and I know his people. And that's enough for me, despite the pain and struggle of the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean we invite pain and suffering. It doesn't mean we want to be put under pressure or persecuted. It doesn't mean we look for that. But I think it does challenge us who live in a comfortable place to ask, how strong is our faith? What's our faith? If all I really had was Jesus and his people, would that actually be enough for me? Or do I have to have all this other stuff? Do I have to have comfort and security? Do I have to have the ambitions of my heart? Do I have to have a good income and a nice house? Would it be enough to be at peace with God and with my brothers and sisters in the church. That's a challenge. I don't say that to shame any of us because I've lived here my entire life too. I've lived in a place where Christianity is still privileged my entire life. I've never experienced that kind of pressure. I've never experienced what it's like to not have my faith accepted. And so it's a challenge for me as well. But we get into this letter and we're covering the first three chapters today because 1 Thessalonians is a letter that is like 60% thanksgiving. So Paul always, when he writes these letters, here's what, here's what he does. He always starts with a greeting. Hey to you in wherever you happen to be. Like, hey people, it's me Paul and my buddies Silas and Timothy. And then he goes into a period of thanksgiving, usually. Unless he's like really mad, then he gives some kind of thanksgiving for the church. And then he gets into his instructions for the church. So... Here's the structure of Paul's letters. Greeting, hey everybody, it's me, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy. Thanksgiving, thank God for you and for the good news of Jesus. Instruction, by the way, here's how you should live or here's how you should respond to that struggle you're having in your community. And then four is usually like thanks from everybody that he's hung out with and some kind of closing to the letter. And normally in those sections, that piece, that teaching piece is like really big. 
So you get a little greeting, a little thanksgiving, and then this long section of like, here's how you should live, and then this little ending. Thessalonians is kind of flipped on its head that way. You get this little greeting, and then you got this long piece of thanksgiving, and then there's some teaching, and then there's the, the benediction, the end of the letter. So we're going to spend most of the time in the teaching section. We're going to cover all that Thanksgiving section right today in chapters 1 to 3. So three chapters today is a big chunk of Scripture. But like I said last week, basically what Paul is saying here is your faith is amazing. You're struggling. You're suffering. And yet you're joyful. You're struggling and you're suffering and you're feeling pressure, and yet you love each other like nobody else I've seen before. You're amazing at loving each other and at being faithful to Jesus despite your suffering. In fact, it's the suffering that you've experienced that has caused your faith to be so deep and caused your love for one another to grow so much because you ain't got nothing but Jesus and each other. And it's amazing to watch. It's amazing to hear about. And so Paul's thanking them. But what comes up in these first three chapters is, is really what you think, what the Apostle Paul thinks is kind of the most important thing in life. In fact, I would argue that what comes up in these first three chapters of Thessalonians is what Paul thinks is the worst thing a person can do and the best thing a person can do. And I imagine if we took a poll right now of everybody in the room and we asked, what's the worst thing a person can do and what's the best thing a person can do we would all have different opinions about what's the worst thing a person can do. You know, murder, theft, betrayal, treason. These would all make the list, I'm sure. If we asked a lot of you in the room what the best thing a person can do is, I imagine a number of you who have been around the church a long time would say, give your life to Jesus. I have no doubt about that. There might be some other thoughts and other ideas, but in this kind of crowd, most of the people are going to say, the best thing a person can do is follow Jesus. The worst thing a person can do is hurt someone in some way, particularly in a way that betrays them or destroys their life. That's what I would imagine we would be in those themes. I think the Apostle Paul thinks a little bit differently than us on this. Through these first chapters of Thessalonians, Paul is talking a lot about the suffering of the Thessalonian Christians, and he talks about how the people who oppose them and are persecuting them are storing up wrath for themselves. Paul believes a day of wrath is coming. He says that clearly in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, to wait for God's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul thinks that a day of judgment is coming. He thinks that a day of God's judgment is going to come for everybody and that those who have opposed Jesus will face the most severe wrath. He makes that clear as he goes through these letters. Look, these people who are opposing you, these people who are putting you down, these people who are trying to stop the good news of Jesus from going forward, they're the worst. I think Paul thinks the worst thing a person can do in life is stop the good news of Jesus from going out. Now you think about all the other ways you can harm a person. And all the ways that we can harm a person are temporary, except for murder. Generally. But this is the thing that you can do that will affect people eternally. Paul makes the argument here that those who are trying to stop the gospel, those who are standing opposed to Jesus, are harming people in the worst kind of way. They're hurting people 
in the worst kind of way because they're cutting them off from the hope of Christ. They're cutting them off from the hope of redemption that is in Jesus. They're cutting them off from the love of God in Jesus Christ. They're cutting them off from the community of God that could surround them and support them. Stopping or trying to stop Jesus' mission is the worst thing a person can do. And that's the argument Paul makes. It's not that the other things that we would name aren't bad. They're horrible. They're awful. They're evil. We don't have to have a ranked list of what's worst in the world to say murder is horrible. Theft is horrible. Treason and betrayal are awful. Like all of these things are terrible, terrible, horrible, awful things to do. But I think Paul might say, look, those who are trying to stop the good news of Jesus are actually engaging in the worst kind of harm to the world. Because they're cutting off the world from the hope of Jesus Christ, the only hope that can actually save them and bring them into God's family. And why would you do that? Why would you cut people off from the hope that is in Jesus Christ? In fact, he goes on to say, I wanted to come to you, church, Christians, followers of Jesus. I really, I've wanted to come to you multiple times, but I've been stopped by Satan. To oppose the work of the good news of Jesus, to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to do the work of Satan. It's to do the work of God's opponent. It's to do the work of the one who stands in opposition to Jesus and to God and to all that is good and right in the world. It's the worst thing we could do. So in contrast, what's the best thing that could be done? What is the best thing we could do? Paul spends a whole lot more verses talking about this in these three chapters than he does about what I just talked about. The best thing we could do is to hold fast to Jesus and share the good news about him. That is the best thing a person can do in this life. There is nothing you can do that is better than that. Nothing. Now, that comes with a lot of implications. People who hold fast to Jesus and share the good news, they'll feed the poor. They'll clothe the naked. They will embrace the lonely. They will welcome people in. They will provide for needs. But it starts with a heart that longs to follow Jesus. All of the good things that come out of the good news of Jesus must begin with our surrendering our lives to him to making him our king and saying, we give everything to you. We follow you. We love because you loved us. We forgive because you've forgiven us. We provide for the needy because you have provided for our needs. We love people. We clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. We serve the poor because that's what you have done, Jesus. And that's what you've empowered us to do. We do all these things because we're followers of Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because we do these things. There's a cause and effect here. And so the best thing we can do, the absolute best thing a human being can do with their lives is to hand it over to Jesus. To follow him. To give their full allegiance to Jesus. And then follow in his way of life. Follow in his footsteps. And then to share that good news with other people. Now, we share that good news and we follow Jesus according to this letter, 1 Thessalonians, because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning. That's, that's like the premise on which Paul is 
arguing. He's, he's gone to Thessalonica, he's preached the good news. And here's the short version of the good news of Paul. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 15. God wrapped himself in flesh, came to earth as one of us, lived and showed us what it was like to live a pure and holy life, died the death we deserve, rose from the dead to conquer death, and now rules and reigns as king, where he will one day come back to free all of the world from the bondage of sin. That's the gospel of Jesus. That's the good news according to Paul. And we can't have a full good news without that last bit about the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is the king of the world who is returning one day to make an end to all that is wrong, to bring us into perfect paradise, to give us the life and the world that we long for. Jesus is returning. And because of that, everybody needs to know that Jesus is king and he's coming back. Everybody. Because if Jesus returns and you don't know him and you don't follow him, you'll experience the wrath of God like the rest of the world. And so Paul's making the argument through these chapters, Jesus is coming back, therefore be faithful, therefore hold fast to Jesus, therefore share the good news of Jesus. Now we got a problem here. Because we live in a time in the world where the church has not been good at sharing the good news of Jesus. In fact, if you ask people on the street generally what they think of Jesus, the opinions are very high. Jesus is cool. I like Jesus. He loved people. He embraced people. He cared for the poor. He healed the sick. He clothed the naked. Jesus was pretty cool. What do you think of Christians? Christians haven't done a great job of being like Jesus very often. And when we talk about sharing the good news of Jesus, so often what people think that we mean is beating people over the head with the Bible and shaming them until they finally give up and give in and become Christians. They say a prayer or they become a, a whatever. They, they say some kind of prayer and they're magically in the, in the family. They're free from hell. And that couldn't be further from what sharing the good news of Jesus actually is. We think of sharing the good news of Jesus primarily as speaking. We think of street preachers, maybe, or you think about that person who's just obnoxious, who's always telling people they're going to hell if they don't uh, believe in Jesus. And the problem is that that's, that has nothing to do with the way that the New Testament presents following Jesus or sharing the good news of Jesus. You know how many times hell is mentioned in the preaching in the New Testament? Zero. None. You know what's mentioned? The life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the love that his community, that his people are supposed to have for each other. Like, that's the evangelistic preaching of the New Testament. And you know what we see a whole lot more of than we do preaching in the New Testament? We see a whole lot more commands to love one another and to serve one another. We're not trying to sell the good news of Jesus. I've come to the conclusion there are two kinds of people in the world. You remember the, uh, the like, timeshare opportunities? You might, you might be offered, like, a free vacation. All you have to do is sit through this three-hour presentation where you're going to be hard-pressed to buy a timeshare. Anybody? Re- I, don't, I haven't seen any of those ads in a long time, but, but anybody remember those things? Like, you can get a free vacation. Just sit through this four-hour presentation, and then you'll get three days in this beautiful locale, Right? I've, I've, I've come to the conclusion there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who take the vacation 
and will endure the timeshare presentation. And then there are people who are like, no way. Four hours of my day is not worth a three-day vacation in this place. It's just not worth it. I don't want to sit there through that high-pressure sales. You got both kinds of people in the world. You know what you don't have is anybody who's like, yeah, I really want to sit through that presentation. Like, I'll take the vacation just to sit through the sales presentation, right? Unless anybody in here like that? Good. We might have had some serious counseling to do. Right? Now, nobody says, yeah, I'll take the vacation because I really want to sit through that sales presentation. Nobody wants to be sold to. Nobody wants to be made an object. Nobody wants you to look at them or feel like you're looking at them because you're going to fill their piggy bank or because you've got something they need. We want to feel honest, real connection with people. We want to love and be loved. We don't want to feel like an object of people's service. We don't want to feel like an object for people's sales force. But unfortunately, a lot of the world or a lot of the church has treated speaking about the good news of Jesus as a sales pitch. I've gone to many conferences where they'll talk about your five-minute gospel presentation. Here's one of the dumbest questions Christians ask each other, evangelical Christians ask each other. If you only had five minutes on an elevator with somebody, how would you share the gospel? I really think that's a dumb question. And I've been asked that, I've been asked that in like preparation for becoming a pastor stuff. Like, pastor, what would your five-minute gospel presentation would be? And I would say, I don't have a five-minute gospel presentation. Ideally, my life is the presentation of the gospel. Your life, follower of Jesus, is the presentation of the good news of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. God can use anything. God can use anything to change a mind or change a heart. But it's probably not going to be your two-minute gospel presentation on an elevator with a stranger who doesn't want you to talk to them anyway. Right? Too much and too often, the church, the, the Christian church, has talked about evangelism in a way that makes our people uncomfortable and makes the world uncomfortable because it's like a sales pitch that we have to give and we have to turn people over. We have to make the sale. And if you can just make the sale, then you've done your job. I went to a homeschool convention one time. I was not homeschooled. I was going as a chaperone. I went to a home school convention one time. They had a breakout session where it was a, a soul-winning competition. These kids, these middle school and high school kids were encouraged to come in and tell people how many people they got to pray the sinner's prayer that year. And the one who had the most sinner's prayers won the prize. Now, this was in the South where almost everybody identified as Christian anyway. So you don't, I don't know what's going on with these people. But a soul-winning competition, like, that is not the good news of Jesus. That is not the gospel of Jesus. That's not how we present it. It's not a sales pitch. And the apostle Paul and his buddies, they didn't present it as a sales pitch when they went to a city. They didn't, like, walk into the marketplace and be like, you all go into hell, you got to follow Jesus, now get down and say the sinner's prayer. They went into a place and they spoke about Jesus when they got to a city. Here's what they do. They go to a city. They'd walk into the synagogue or the gathering of the Jewish people and they would start teaching about Jesus, the Messiah, who is the king of the Jewish people. And they would hope that people would be convinced by that. And then they would invite them to get together more often to talk about what it means that Jesus is Messiah. And then the apostles would model for these people the life of what it was to follow Jesus. And they would live with them and live among them and walk among them and teach them about Jesus. And at no point were they like, you weren't a Christian before, now you are. Like, there was no like sinner's prayer moment. There was no sales pitch to be made. 
It was, you were living this way, and now we're going to teach you what it is to follow Jesus with our lives. We're going to parent you into this family. We're going to walk alongside you. We're going to show you what it's like to love people well, because we're going to love you well. We're going to serve you, not sell you. And that's what sharing the good news of Jesus is. It's service, not sales. It's about living a life of following Jesus and letting that life permeate everything you do. Letting that life be the witness to the good news of Jesus. So that people go, wait a minute. Like like those people we talked about at the beginning. You're struggling, but you're so joyful. I see you like cutting into your standard of living in order to give and love and care for people. What's that about? Why on earth would you spend your voluntary time over there serving those people instead of doing the thing that you enjoy doing? Why would you choose to do something you don't really want to do to care for another person? Why don't you demonize those people over there like I do? Why don't you think they're totally bad? How is it that you see good in those people or in that population? Sharing the good news of Jesus is about serving people with the love of Christ as Jesus has served us and as Jesus served his first followers. It's about showing them what real love looks like. It's about showing them what God's kingdom is really about. About love and justice and care. And yes, speaking the good news that Jesus is king. Saying, I do this, I live this way because Jesus is my king. Because he's taught me how to live. I choose to give up those things. I choose to spend time with those people. I choose to be in this place. I choose to give up this money. I choose to do these things because Jesus lives and he has taught me how to live. That's the greatest witness to the good news of Jesus. That's the greatest witness to our Lord and King Jesus. And as we go out this year, as we go out from this church, as we go out from this place, from this body, let us commit ourselves to living like Jesus, serving and loving, assuming the best of the people around us, not trying to sell people on the good news of Jesus, but living like him in every way, praying daily that God's Holy Spirit would move me to be more like Jesus. Reading my Bible and spending time in prayer and spending time with God's people. Not because those are legalistic acts that will make God love me, but because they're how I become like Jesus. Orienting everything in my life to being like Jesus. Structuring my life in such a way that it is always pointing me to Jesus. Because if I am always pointed to Jesus, then I will always point others to Jesus. And I don't have to make a sales pitch. If my life is oriented around him, then I'm naturally going to point to him. Like I said last week, I was talking about thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I had this revelation. It's not really a revelation. But I had this epiphany where like, the point of those things is not to pursue each of those fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If I try and build up any one of those things in my own life, I'll only get frustrated every time I fail. The point of the fruit of the Spirit is being the kind of tree that produces those fruit. 
The point of following Jesus is not to legalistically try to do everything he taught us so that God will love us. The point of becoming like Jesus is because, so that we'll become people who are like Jesus and who love well. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy did. That's what these Thessalonian Christians did. And that's why their church exploded in a place where there was suffering and pain. And that's why if you could ask these Thessalonian Christians about their joy and their inner life, they would tell you we're suffering, but we're happy. We're suffering, but we're fulfilled. We're suffering, but we're content. They found in the good news of Jesus a release They found in the good news of Jesus a freedom and a joy and an embrace and a love that they couldn't find anywhere else. This is what the good news does for us. This is the good news of Jesus on our behalf. It welcomes us into a family and empowers us to become like Jesus without any pressure to perform, without any pressure to be perfect in every way, without the pressure to go out and soul win, but to just go be Jesus to the world. The best thing we can do as human beings is to give our life to Jesus and become like him. It's the best thing we can do for ourselves. It's the best thing we can do for our neighbors and for our family. And so Christian, invest your life in becoming like Jesus. Invest your life in being close to him. Invest your life in knowing his word and in conversing with him daily. And let Jesus' character flow through you as you get close to him. Non-Christian, person who's not a follower of Jesus today, the best thing you can do with your life is to give it to Jesus to accept that he is God who came to live on this earth, to die in your place, to rise again, and that one day he will come back to rid the world of all the things that go wrong today, to rid the world of all the sin and brokenness that there is, to rid the world of all the sickness and the pain and the poverty, and to make us whole. And that when he does return, He wants to find people who look like him, who live like him, who have followed him, who have given their lives to him. Make your life a whiff of heaven to the people around you by becoming like Jesus. So wherever you stand today, wherever you've been, whoever you are, the best thing you can do right now is to give your life to Jesus, to renew that commitment to becoming like him, or to make it for the first time. To say, Jesus, I want to be like you. And we start that with this meal. We start that with taking into ourselves the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And after supper, Jesus took the cup. And said, this is my blood of the covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. When we come to this table and we partake of the body and blood of Jesus, we take into ourselves his sacrifice for us. 
And we ask that we would be made into people who would sacrifice for others as Jesus has sacrificed for us.